Welcome to Bright Now, a podcast about parenting and educating talented kids, sponsored by the Johns Hopkins Center for Talented Youth. I'm your host, Jonathan Plucker, the Julian C. Stanley Endowed Professor of Talent Development at CTY and Johns Hopkins University. Welcome to the spring half of season three of Bright Now, the CTY podcast on raising and teaching advanced children. As you can imagine, we're recording this season differently than in the past. I'm at home rather than in the clean-cut studio, so please be tolerant of the occasional barking dog, unexpected interruption, or delivery truck. We tested the system yesterday and everything sounded good or as good as it can, so I'm optimistic things will go well for these next few episodes. In these trying times, I thought it would be good to start off this half of season three with an expert that I personally find inspiring. We can all use a little more of that right now. Colin Seal was born and raised in Brooklyn, where struggles in his upbringing gave birth to his passion for educational equity. Tracked early into gifted programs, Colin was afforded opportunities his neighborhood peers were not. Using lessons from his experience as a math teacher and later an attorney, Colin founded Think Law, an award-winning organization to help educators leverage inquiry-based instructional strategies to close critical thinking gaps and ensure they teach and reach all students. When he's not serving as one of the world's most influential critical thinking advocates, Colin proudly serves as the world's greatest entertainer to his two young children and a loving husband to his wife, Carrie. His new book, Thinking Like a Lawyer, a Framework for Teaching Critical Thinking to All Students, has just been published by Proofrock Press, and you can find more information about it at their website, which we'll include in the show notes for this episode. I first met Colin when we both spoke at an equity conference hosted by the Texas Association for the Gifted and Talented last summer, and attended a couple of his presentations at the National Association for Gifted Children Convention in New Mexico last fall. Colin and his team were doing great work in equity and critical thinking, among other areas, and I thought he'd be a great guest for the podcast. Colin, welcome to Bright Now. Thanks so much for having me, Jonathan. So one of the reasons that I'm extremely fired up about being a part of this conversation right now is just that, just stepping back and looking across the country, watching what educators have done, I mean, all across the country in so many school systems, going from zero to 100 with putting together these distance learning plans that would otherwise have seemed impossible and getting teachers and students using video conferences and ways that otherwise would have seemed impossible makes me feel like when we get past this and we start talking about doing the big, hard things, actually moved beyond the idea of what's actually possible. And I'm super excited about what that can mean going forward with some of the really important equity conversations that need to happen and what this means for our work within this context when it comes to closing the critical thinking gap, when it comes to creating spaces where we don't leave genius on the table. So that's my little silver lining for an otherwise very depressing time. But educators are always the ones that are giving me hope and keeping that energy forward. So really, really glad to be with you today. Well, that's great. We're super psyched to have you today. So let's start with the current situation. I want to make sure that I ask about your family. I'd, how is your family adjusting to these new family and work routines given given the crisis? Sure, sure. So I have a four-year-old son and a seven-year-old daughter, and my wife is a professor. And it's funny, you know, my wife and I both essentially work from home, and we've been invaded. We have been 
you know, this our, our workspaces have been taken over. I'm like, I know social distances is a thing on the outside, but how about on the inside? So we're working it out. But at the same time, again, the silver lining is we really get to understand what it looks like to kind of push our kids on their own level. I was actually considering the idea of homeschooling for my daughter anyway, right? Even though it wasn't really practical, I was thinking about it. And and I thought for my daughter, who's an advanced learner, she skipped over the first grade. She's in second grade now. I, I did the math, Jonathan. At best, during the regular school day, she's probably doing two hours of like actual legit work. So this idea that we need to replace an entire seven hour day and have all these superstructured activities that really exist more for the convenience of mass education than they do for like pushing each individual child like at their level to maintain the level of challenge and rigor. Like it's not really a thing. So watching what they do with their free time is super exciting. Watching how they create. And I actually wrote a piece for Forbes about tips for parents to think about critical thinking at home. And one of the most exciting things that I've asked parents to do is get your kids to teach something. And it is so powerful to watch kids explain things as if their audience was other children. See the level of detail they get into, realize what they really love talking about, see what they're proud about doing well and using those strengths to garner even more interest. So again, we're making the best out of what's a tough situation. And we're trying to create resources in the meantime to help people get through it. One of the things that we've done is we created uh, a hackathon for social change where young people get to submit their best ideas for dealing with social distancing. Because obviously people around the country are having a tough time with it. We're not really asking young people for their answers, but they have them. So um, that's something that is like a free resource. We, we just do on Teachers Pay Teachers. We got over 100 people have downloaded it. And we just want to be helpful. We want to be able to use this as an opportunity to do things that we normally wouldn't do in our K-12 education system. So we're, we're having a lot of fun. Well, that's great to hear. Let's talk about uh, ThinkLaw for a bit. Why, why, why did you create ThinkLaw, Colin? So it's interesting. I am a kid who grew up in, in Brooklyn, New York, who was struggling with all these behavior challenges. And eventually, really by a strike of random acts of luck, I got tested and selected to be in one of New York City's gifted and talented programs. And I think that's where my initial sense of educational equity was born because I realized that in this gifted class where I was only one of 12 kids in the entire school per grade level to be selected in this program, and mind you, this was a school that I was getting bused to, to be one of 12 kids, it made me realize that this transformational educational experience where I was being pushed every day and was writing creatively and making up my own fairy tales and all of this critical thinking I had access to felt like a luxury good. And as I became a teacher myself, as I started like working as an attorney and working in different capacities as an executive committee member for the Nevada STEM Coalition back when I lived in Las Vegas, I realized here we are talking about this future of work. And this idea that all these kids need critical thinking skills, but in reality, we're reserving it for a very tiny portion of our kids. At the same time, I had the chance to work in juvenile detention when I was in law school. And I realized that like, there's so many brilliant kids that are sitting in juvenile detention, 
that are failing out of high school because we decided it was okay to leave genius on a table. So what Think Law does is it gives educators a practical tool to close the critical thinking gap. And we do it using real life legal cases in upper grades. We do it through curriculum that's based off of fairy tales and nursery rhymes in lower grades, since there are so many shady characters in children's stories. And we do a lot of training, critical thinking workshops with parents, with teachers, really trying to spark a critical thinking revolution so that it is no longer a luxury good. So I'm interested, given all that you've done with critical thinking and the equitable teaching of critical thinking, what do you think the biggest hurdle is to promoting critical thinking right now? I think the biggest challenge is part of the larger conversation around why we have so many opportunity gaps to begin with, which is the belief gap. But I've kind of put some layers on the belief gap. So for one, we still have far too many educators that don't actually believe that all kids can handle rigorous and challenging material. On top of that, even teachers that actually believe that, right? Like, let's say they believe that all kids can do this in theory. Too many teachers don't actually believe that they have the capacity to make that happen. Call that teacher efficacy, whatever you want to call it. Like They don't feel like they have the ability. And going forward, going beyond that, even if they've got the belief, even if they've got the will, we've got a really tough problem in education when it comes to that actual skill set. Who's actually given the tools that how, that super nitty gritty how. And when I say how, I'm talking about What does it look like on a Tuesday morning in April to teach critical thinking in a secondary math class or an elementary school art class? Like These are the things that we are trying to figure out. So our work is 50% evangelism, like bringing you there in terms of your mindset, this idea that all kids can. But then the other 50% is the nitty gritty how. I had this opportunity to be teaching while going to law school at night. And I realized that the same critical thinking I was doing in law school, looking at different perspectives, asking questions to get information, making claims and backing it up with evidence. That was exactly the same kind of critical thinking we needed to do in our classroom. So my Thinking Like a Lawyer book, which is published through Proofrock Press, that is a book that really breaks down every aspect of the thinking like a lawyer methodology that I've been working on for the last five years, whether it's mistake analysis or investigation and discovery or settlement negotiation, all these different aspects of thinking like a lawyer that apply completely seamlessly into your day-to-day instruction as a classroom teacher in a very curriculum agnostic way. I don't care what you're teaching, what subject, what grade level, these are practical tools that you can use to really switch up the way we think about critical thinking in education today. So there, there are several things that you just talked about that have striking parallels to what many of my colleagues and I believe about creativity, which is a related but certainly distinct set of skills. Um, I mean, you essentially described an attitude plus opportunity model that sort of cuts across content areas. Colin, that is exactly how we talk about creativity in that at least half, if not three quarters, is about attitude. If you are are full of stereotypes about what creativity is or isn't, and you don't believe that you yourself are creative, there's almost nothing we can do, right? But Mm -hmm. on the positive side, if we focus on attitude, 
and we can get you to believe through doing it that actually, hey, I am pretty creative. It's amazing what kids can just, they just take that ball and run with it. And then I'm also very interested to hear you say that it cuts across content areas because a lot of people do not believe that about creativity or critical thinking. Can you, can you talk about that a little bit more? Sure, sure. So let's take an earlier grade. Let's take let's take a kindergarten student, right? A lot of times kindergartners are doing like nursery rhymes and fairy tales, whatever have you. Let's take a look at Jack and Jill, right? Jack and Jill went up the hill and stuff hit the fan, right? Like everybody falls down. Jill comes tumbling after. But we don't know. We're not as familiar with the second stanza. When you start introducing the second stanza, it turns out Jack went home. Jack got his wounds taken care of. What in the world happened to Jill? What kind of friend leaves his other friend at the bottom of a hill? So you start talking about creativity. You start talking about these angles of fairness and justice and using that as a hook for our kids to start thinking deeply about things. The type of situational scenarios our kids can develop to explain what just happened there is something that can happen as early as kindergarten. Let's fast forward all the way to like secondary and let's start thinking about Let's just take science class and take the idea of pH. pH, unfortunately, is just not the sexiest topic in the universe, right? It's pH. But pH feels a little bit different when we ask kids to take a look at an announcement that their principal makes, which basically says, hey, you know what? We're having some problems with the water. So don't drink the water. Don't wash your hands with the water. Don't do anything with this water because you might get sick. What we basically did was take the same exact message the mayor of Flint, Michigan, gave to the citizens of of Flint, Michigan during their water crisis. And our kids are personalizing this. And now they're using these same habits to start looking at the pH in their own neighborhoods and understanding, like, why this makes a difference and what it means to have, like, safe access to water. And the level of buy-in around a topic like pH has now been taken to a whole nother level. The idea here, I would say if there's one pattern, it's low floor, high ceiling. It's this idea that teachers learn about Bloom's taxonomy, right? Like this little staircase of levels of knowledge. And it almost creates a false presumption that the only way to get to the top is starting all the way at the bottom, starting with the basics. And when we stop that and we say, you know what? It doesn't really matter. We can get kids to think deeply about things. We can get them to be very invested in the question. And because they're invested in the question, they'll be digging down to get those lower level skills because we got them on a really powerful hook. With all this in mind, can you tell the parents and teachers who are listening right now what sorts of materials and resources they can find in your new book? Yeah, yeah. So like... We have several different chapters where we talk about all the different ways that we can approach questioning, the way that we can take these thinking like a lawyer issues, like mistake analysis, for instance, where we give you practical ideas to say, instead of just giving the kid a problem or asking them a question, give them a choice where you say, okay, here are two math problems. They're both done incorrectly. Which one should get more credit? And what we've done is we've essentially introduced drama in conflict into a subject that doesn't typically look like it should involve drama and conflict. We take something like competition and we flip it on its head. Like law is all about competition, right? You got class rank, it's you got to win these cases. But if we think about healthy competition that doesn't cause every kid to start having breakdowns and crying, 
The best way to do this is to create a space where they're able to feel like they're competing against themselves. Even me, like, I'm not going to play tennis against Serena Williams. I'm not going to do a three-point contest with Steph Curry. I'm going to feel pretty deflated. But if I figured out a way to make it so that it's a competition that drives me, well, I'm continuously seeing myself get better. Moreover, if I'm able to contribute to my team and our collective glory through my individual achievement, like that gives me even more buy-in and investment. So we're basically giving you a lot of practical tools as an educator, as a parent, to fit critical thinking into your context. If you really care about like making sure your kids do well on standardized exams, we talk about critical thinking within the standardized exams context. If you're a teacher struggling with classroom management, we talk about how critical thinking can be the secret to classroom management because you know what it's like, Jonathan? When kids are locked in, when they're tapped into what they're learning that day, there's no behavior issues. And it's also this other magic, like I think their bladders become synchronized because no one has to go to the bathroom all of a sudden when they're locked into the learning. So like that's kind of what we're talking about, super practical ideas that are very easy to implement in the classroom and at home. Yeah. There is nothing more powerful, right, than walking into a classroom where kids are locked in. It is just, it is transformative. And you just are like, oh, wait, we can solve all the world's problems. Like, this is actually possible. And so that's just great. We only have about four minutes left here. So I want to shift gears a little bit and talk more specifically about something that you've mentioned several times, but that's equity. As you are a graduate of the Bronx High School of Science, you've been very outspoken about all the different New York City equity issues in the selective high schools and gifted education in general. Let's start, if you could just quickly tell us what you think you gain from attending like one of the country's best known selective high schools. Sure, sure. So to put it in context, when I got into Bronx Science, it felt like to my family that we won the lottery. I'm this first generation kid. My family is all from Barbados. You know, I'm on free and reduced lunch. My dad is incarcerated for selling drugs. Like I won the lottery. And winning the lottery meant that I have a 90 minute commute each way to go from Brooklyn to the Bronx to go to this school. And although I'm double accelerated in multiple subjects, at that time, like, I really questioned whether Bronx Science was actually a school that was designed for a kid like me. Because even though the sole criteria was a single test, and I passed this test with flying colors, I struggled. I had 80-plus absences. I was failing multiple classes. I wasn't doing any work. And no one really intervened. When I started to actually have a counselor, like, you know, start to support me at that school, when I got to get more comfortable with the idea of being there, because I went from a completely segregated middle school, elementary school context to a super diverse school where I was very much in the minority, it, it was something that nobody had really thought about supporting me on from that context. So when I look at kids today that are struggling, I think they said, you know, 24 black kids got in to Bronx Science this year, 10 got into Stuyvesant. And I'm like, all right, I have to be honest. I don't know that like it was easy to be black and be at Bronx Science at the same time. A lot of my fellow classmates that were on academic probation looked like me. And it wasn't like something was wrong with us, right? We were all qualified to be there, but there was something about this system. There was something about this program that was more about like a school for achievers than a school for kids that had high potential to achieve. It's a subtle difference, but it's a difference that mattered a whole lot. And when I think about the idea that we're spending so much political resources and social capital and all this actual money 
or trying to see who gets access to these nine schools, part of me is like, what if the school that I could walk to was not a dropout factory? That would be equity. Like, it would be awesome for me to have an amazing program in my own neighborhood, going all the way back to elementary school. Why in the world did I have to get bust out of my neighborhood to get access to a gifted and talented program? Why weren't they in every single school? And not just in the class, but like, why weren't there talent development opportunities for other kids to get pushed, to get enrichment, to get to the point where the idea of taking algebra one in eighth grade wasn't some rare thing, but a common expectation that a lot of kids can handle. So that's kind of my view on it. We just got to think more broadly. And honestly, thinking about nine of 400 schools, there's 400 high schools in New York City. Talking about nine of them, I just don't think that's going to be really worth the effort that needs to happen if we really want to create a world where we're not leaving genius on the table throughout New York City and throughout the country. Yeah, you and I have talked about this before online, right, on Twitter and other places, but it just astounds me that there's just not this expectation that we have advanced learning in every single school in this country. Like, I just... I don't know what we need to do to change the mindset. I know you think about this a lot. I think about this constantly. A lot of my colleagues do, but I think part of it is what you just hinted at, right? Which is that people don't believe that there are those kids in every school, but there are in every single school. And again, going back to how we started, we can't say it's impossible anymore because we're doing things right now that are harder than that. So we can't say it's impossible anymore. We know we can. We just have to have the will. And if we're not going to have the will, then we just need to have the policy that makes it so that we must and then work backwards from there. So I'm grateful that you and others all throughout the country, be it NAGC and other advocates, are really pushing for these policies to shift because Lord knows we need our brilliant people to unleash their brilliance now more than ever. We need it. Period. Colin, unfortunately, we're going to have to stop here for now. We will definitely have you back uh, in, in, in the future. You have been a great guest. You can follow Colin Seal on Twitter at, at Colin E. Seal, and you can find his new book, Thinking Like a Lawyer, a framework for teaching critical thinking to all students at the Proofrock Press website. I will include all of that information in the show notes, and I believe that Colin is going to be speaking at the NAGC convention in Orlando next November, too. Thank you all for listening, and we'll see you in the next episode. That's it for this episode of Bright Now. Tell us what topics you'd like to see covered in future episodes by emailing your suggestions to brightnowpodcast at gmail.com. If you enjoy Bright Now, support us by sharing the podcast with friends on social media, and be sure to subscribe, rate, and give a review on iTunes. Thanks for listening. Bright Now is produced by Jonathan Pucker, Tracy Guerin, and Trisha Schellenbach. Audio production by Iris Starkangelo and the team at Clean Cuts, a Three C's company. Our score was written by Austin Coughlin from Noise Distillery. Special thanks to CTY's Interim Executive Director, Amy Shelton. Bright Now is underwritten by the Johns Hopkins Center for Talented Youth, a nonprofit dedicated to identifying and developing the talents of academically advanced students worldwide. Find us on the web at cty.jhu.edu and on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter.